0: Readings, ladies and managers and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Humanity Has No Enemy Except for Itself or How Even Orcs Are Wary of Humans written by Orange Gallen. Gerteth walked with slow beleaguered steps towards the High Orc Lord's throne to give his report. His mood morose and irritated. His breathing was deliberately even, to not allow any sign of his weariness to escape in the presence of the High Lord. For an orc, creative for conflict and endurance, to display tightness, was the ask for death. But Gerteth felt the report needed to be given, and he would risk death to deliver it. What had been a standard run-of-the-mill rate, had turned into an unexpected bloodbath, specifically, a bloodbath inflicted upon the wrong party. Reaching near enough to the throne, he kneeled, grimaced in pain as a movement shifted an arrowhead still embedded in his shoulder. It was lightly bandaged as he hadn't waited for more before heading here. My lord, I bring news that you must hear. The high orc lord, gar Utax shifted the skulls of numerous species, which made up the throne creaking in his movement. Gurtath resisted a shiver. Lord Ursef stood and spoke, his voice collected and calm. Then speak. My raiding body chanced across a new human village at the eastern edge of your territory. It is still new and developing, and we sought to cripple it and take new slaves Gerteth explained. I can only assume resistance was stiffer than you thought, as you are wounded and I can hear none of the usual festivities of a successful raid. Joseph keenly observed. Resistance is too light of a word, my lord, Gerteth responded. After a motion to continue, he did so. The humans fought fiercer than a feral wargs. They had few true warriors among them, but even those who were young and elderly grasped tools to fight us. Even the females. The whole village rallied, and their ferocity saw all but myself and three others die in battle. If he had not seen it, Gurtath wouldn't have believed it. He'd raided elven and dwarven settlements, even raised an angel's roost, Yet none had offered such ferocity on the scale. Normally, if a race's fighters were killed, the rest submitted, albeit unwillingly or meekly resisted the orc's dominance. Likewise, if their fighters defeated the orcs, well, every orc is a fighter. That mere untrained peasant humans could defeat an orc party, especially his, was unthinkable. And yet, that is what happened. This is the first time you fought humans in open combat, is it not? I recognized this behavior from others that had fared the same. Osef spoke. Even I have fallen into this mindset. After several raids against them to get cocky. And then, suddenly, your entire party is slain when they should have been easy prey. He scratched an old scar on his throat. One that had been there for longer than Garteth had been spawned. You are just unfortunate to have this happen on your first raid against them. Unable to contain his rage any longer, Garteth spoke up. It was a coward's tactic, pretending to be weak to lure us in. My lord, we should rally a full war party to crush that village. Teach them why orcs are feared amongst the races. They are weak now, their village will burn, and we shall enslave the survivors too. No. The single word that came from the High Lord immediately silenced Skarteth's tirade, leaving him in confusion. My Lord. Ursa was lost in thought as he stood from his throne, wandering aimlessly before coming to a halt in front of a window, overlooking his conquered territory. They weren't cowardly. At least that village wasn't. It wasn't a trick, except one you created in your mind. Have you ever wondered how the humans came to exist, Goethe? Goethe stayed silent for a moment while choosing his words, confused by the non sequitur. He never thought about humans, except in how comparatively weak they were, and made only mildly useful slaves. He wondered why his lord brought this topic up. I can't say that I have, my lord. Every race instinctively knows their origins. as have said, legends from before remembrance, ingrained in our species' psyche. We know the primal darkness molded the first orcs in competition with the first Radiance's creation, the elves. That angels and demons came from the holy and hellscape realms, both locked in eternal conflict of light and dark. Brought into this world, Years ago, I had the opportunity to ask a human slave which god created them, or how they came to be. They responded, I don't know. Joseph <laughs> so scoffed. Even the lowest and most addled-minded goblin knows their progenitor, the shun god Klebeth and his saga. Yet, this human shrugged, and I could truthfully see he didn't know, nor care. I asked that of other slaves and received the same answer. They don't know. That is interesting, my lord, Gertrith said, unsure of this line of theology. He was a fighter, not a philosopher. Yet, this is what set Urzef gar utex apart from other orcs. He thought ahead to the future, rising above the bloodlust haze their race fell into. Urzef grunted. In amusement, not fooled by Goethe's attempt to sound like he was following along. Throughout my life, even before I became High Lord, I was always curious about the other species. I noticed similarities we all share. For each species has a creator or creation origin, and each has another that is perfectly counter to them has orcs against the elves, dwarves against the goblins, angels and demons, the Fae and the Geists, and so forth. A near perfect counter to the other in all aspects. And then, uh, there are humans. No known creator, god, or formation story. No consistent alignment for the light or for the dark. No true opposite species to fight. Yes, We fight them just as we fight the elves, but all the other species quarrel from time to time. But by the blackness, the humans fight themselves as fiercely as the elves fight us. They can be as cowardly as a lone goblin, yet can also fight with the fervor of a dragon. They can be both dark lords and light lords, but most just are. I would almost consider them to be the only true grey faction. Gertrith was puzzled now. Even he knew that each race operated on the dark-to-light spectrum and would definitively fall into one side or the other. But for a race to be grey, truly unaligned... My lord, uh, what are you saying? Ursif stayed silent for but a moment. I believe that humans are possibly the biggest threat to every race on this world. No single species is their rival, their counterbalance. Wipe one town or village out, and three more will spring up elsewhere, slowly creeping closer by sheer tenacity. They're an ingenious and skillful as any dwarf or goblin, and can fight with the grace of an elf or the brutishness of our race. A human can be as depraved as any demon, and another can be as radiant as an angel. It's almost like they were designed to have all aspects of each race, but not to be constrained to one. Gurdjieff felt an abnormal chol form, the more Ursith continued, an ominous feeling somehow creeping into his mind, that humans could be the cause of this unease, ridiculous yet. Unlike the other races, they have no counter, leaving them unchecked except for themselves. They are the only ones that wage true warfare against themselves. Not even our turf brawls against other clans comes close to the devastation their walls bring upon their own species. As an orc, I can't help but admire that carnage. Ursif gave a singular dark chuckle. And that is what worries me, Ursif then admitted, that the only thing preventing humans from dominating all the races... Is themselves. Humans don't have a rival species. Because they themselves are their own counter. I worry that one day. They could potentially rally under one banner. And rage war upon other races. Like they war upon themselves. There wouldn't be a damn thing any race could do about it. And the balance of the world would be thrown off. Ursa looked more like a beaten warg. Than a high orc lord at this moment and Gertrith felt humbled by his lord letting down his guard, if only for a moment. As if hearing his thoughts, Hirsith straightened, becoming the hardened orc lord that he once was. So, uh, no, we will not attack that human village. At least, not yet. Let them have this victory while I gather as many of our kin as possible. Then once assembled, we'll fall upon the humans in the full rage of the orc. We shall strike the first blow. Remind them why we are the war race. You shall heal, Goethe. And once you do, you will join with all of your brethren in our march. At his lord's declaration, Goethe's fears were evaded, and his warrior spirit renewed. A fight, even a future one, would always boil the blood of any orc. My lord I will do so, and then we will all ruin what humanity treasures. All orc kind will. He stood with a near, feral grin and marched to find the shaman healer to tend to his wound, eager to start his own rampage against those humans. As he walked away, Gertrude didn't hear the words Earth had muttered to himself, the words echoing in the empty throne room. Unfortunately, I fear it'll take all of us orcs to even halt the humans. If even for a moment. I truly despair that'll be a fight we can't win. There's something about humans that makes even an orc like me pause. Even orcs hesitate fighting humans. End of story. The Great Mistake, written by Oriel117. Log Entry 1337, The Great Mistake. It was well known who the Shimshia were. A great spacefaring race, renowned for their overwhelming military might, it was also known which species laid them so very low. The humans. That is the subject of this log. The humans are a bipedal mammalian race, with very little hair, no fur, no scales, no carapace and no feathers, meaning, aside from the tops of their heads and other less relevant places, there is nothing but flesh. This much is common knowledge, along with the fact that humans are notorious for squabbling amongst themselves more than other occupants in the galaxy. They have divided themselves into nations. The first is the United Systems Alliance, or the USA for short. This nation rose out of the United States of America once proper FTL travel had become common enough. They followed many of the same laws and traditions as their Earth-bound counterparts, so it wasn't hard to trace their roots. Their home star is called Washington Star, while their capital has the name Washington, which does get a small bit confusing. The USA is famed within the human nations for their great industrial might and their well-rounded military, though they come under a lot of flak from the other human nations for their presidents they choose and their lack of proper democracy. The next is the Great British Empire, Apparently, after a near 100 years of relative inactivity, the British regained their innovative zeal from their Victorian age and were the first into space using FTL, but not the first to make a nation of it. They called their own star Albion, with the planet they called their capital being called London. The Great British Empire, a constitutional monarchy, is known for its innovative zeal and highly skilled and well-funded navy. With such as the emphasis on exploration and colonization. A large navy was needed to protect their interests, and it is one of the greatest in the galaxy. Their arrogance often annoys the other human nations, however, and they get called traditionalist fools by many other nations for having a monarch, despite it being mostly ceremonial, aside from the military. The Keserac is next, with their home star of Prussia holding a very strategic point in the galaxy being a gateway to the outside galaxy in one direction for the humans around the star orbits the planet berlin the caesar capital these humans are famed for their astounding army outmatching almost anyone in the galaxy with their discipline and tactics they are also specialists in ground vehicles producing the most versatile and capable vehicles the galaxy has ever seen however They are often seen as warmongers and unjust conquerors. The final one we will be discussing today is the Yi Dynasty, originating from the Chinese nation of Earth. While I can't pronounce or even understand the words this nation uses for places, as they are written and spoken in an entirely different dialect from the Latin originating languages of the other three, I do have the translations. The star the capital orbits they call the Kingdom of Heaven while well, the capital itself is called the Jade Palace. They are similar to the USA in their production capabilities, but seem to focus this more on a trade than the USA. They produce a lot of consumer goods, which they export to the rest of the galaxy, which funds their enormous population and army. So many people live in the Yi Dynasty, that it is near impossible to calculate how many times over that they could colonize the Thai seized entire territory. They do get ostracized a bit for their more left-leaning views than most humans would deem reasonable. These are all the nations of the humans that I will be discussing, and they will come up in future logs, to be sure. But for now, this is all that is needed. Was I to list every nation, I would need another terabyte of storage for the names alone. None of the human nations lay claim to the Sol system, nor Earth, the humans' homeworld. Instead, it is treated as almost a sacred place of meeting, where the rights of Earth are seen to above all else, and where nations meet without fear of conflict. The humans on Earth enjoy the guarantee that should they be attacked, every single human nation across the galaxy will rush to their aid and not cease their attacks until the aggressors are wiped off the face of the universe. They have never had to act on this. Now, I must detail the great mistake as an introduction to just what happens when few attack any of the humans. The Shumsha, are a reptilian race, with six limbs, four legs, two arms, and with teeth sharp enough to cut through steel. They are a warlike people, conquering and subjugating all they could, and growing very rich off their spoils. They also practiced slavery, which drew the humans' ire. Not long after they confirmed the reports of slave ships, had every human nation denounced the Shimshah. The great British Empire even formed a fleet with the express purpose of intercepting these slave ships and setting the hostages free. Apparently, when the British Empire ruled a large portion of Earth, their Royal Navy had spent a great deal of resources stopping slave ships from other nations on Earth, to their own cost and drawing the ire of everyone else. The Great British Empire saw it as their duty to continue this law out in the reaches of space, and so they did. Every time a slave ship was captured, it made headline news in the Great British Empire. Their populace would rally together to aid the freed slaves with money, food, and a temporary place to stay, as it was the duty of the citizens of the Empire to pick up where the military left off. Millions of slaves were resettled throughout the galaxy, the great nations of humanity aiding the British in this one endeavor without question. The USA would produce buildings and ships to bring these freed people to a planet with a roof over their head. The Kesar Act would provide planetary support to these new colonies until they could do so themselves. And the Yi dynasty would make the new settlers whatever they wanted until their first factories were set up and the Royal Navy would escort these people to their new home when the time came. The humans were unified on this one point alone. No matter the race, no sentient being should suffer to bear the burden of slavery. These acts brought the humans incredible praise through a large section of the galaxy, while the slaver guilds did nothing but fester in anger. Soon enough, the Shimsha and a small coalition of nations joined together after festering this anger for too long, and declared war on the great empire, the Gaul, enslavement within three solar cycles every single human even those from earth rallied to the defense of the great empire earth had its own feet at the bleeding edge of technology every nation would contribute something to earth's defense and now this great cooperative effort could have its sights set on the slavers the war didn't last long a solar year the human leaders met on earth elected to let the british lead the war effort due to their near-indomitable navy, and the fact that they were the ones under attack. The great admirals of the British coordinated these fleets in a way never before seen. It was a month of learning what each nation had to offer the British, until they found a workable strategy due to all the conflicting doctrines and specialties. But the British were the naval masters amongst the humans, so they got to work. Once the month was up, the first Shimsham fleets were spotted moving into unclaimed border colonies. The combined human fleet raced to meet them. The Shimsham had studied the British and their naval strategies. The British relied on large, heavy ships to decimate the opposition in one swift strike. Then, using their various types of cruisers, they would chase down the enemy and finish them off. All of this was protected by the thick screen of destroyers with point defense and other defensive measures. The Shumsha had repaired for this by using small and fast ships to avoid the opening barrage. This proved futile, however. Not only did the British account for this with their own cruisers, but the Yi Dynasty specialized in overwhelming the enemy with pure numbers. The Shumsha strategy of swarming your enemy was met with a perfect counter, and the fleet was swiftly obliterated. The humans then came to ground combat, where they deployed the elite troops of the Kayserak along with the old cavalry unit from the United Baltic Front called the Winged Hussars. Their elite forces eliminated the ground troops of the Shimsha, despite the Shimsha having physical superiority over the humans in almost every single way. So devastating were the losses that for the rest of the war the humans just sat back and relaxed as they took planet after planet, star after star until they had all but wiped out the Shimsha and their allies. In the older slave nation's place now stands three independent nations. The Democratic Shimsha Confederation was formed by the USA. The Shimsha autocracy was formed by Britain and finally the Union of Three Stars, the Shimsha's homeworld orbits a trinary set of stars, was formed by the Caesar Act. That was the great mistake in a nutshell. A war that lasted a year and now serves as a warning to the galaxy. Attack one human, and you attack them all. End of story. Tanks written by Philipsburg. The war between the Dwarves and Elves had been going on for decades, with many more years before a victory between either would be possible. That, of course, didn't stop both sides' leaders from boasting about their sure victory over the other. The dwarves, using physical attacks and anti-magic defenses, held up in strongholds deep beneath the surface. The elves lived in magical trees, which greatly boosted the magic of even their weaker civilians to fight like a soldier. However, the war changed when humans entered the fray, Originally, magic barriers blocked humans from living permanently near Elven territories under the disguise of national parks and dense forests. But the Elven Council was soon surprised when human soldiers stepped foot in their magically enchanted land, offering support. The Elven Council, petty and greedy, lured the human representatives to a prison where they were tortured for information on how they got in. The representatives only laughed and told him they expected the response before teleporting away by pressing a crystal in his pocket the guards didn't find. Elves. This had horrified the Elven Council as their best mages inscribed millennia-old runes that prevented even the strongest of mages to teleport in the sacred halls of the Council, let alone bring in a crystal of power. But they would sort this matter out later for they knew the Dwarven forces was encroaching on one of their new cities and would soon crush it without proper force to stop them. Dwarves The Dwarven King had originally liked the humans when they first met on the surface before they went to attack an elven city on the war front because of their many flavors of spirits and mead. But he laughed at their tanks' metals, using only surface ores for armor and ordered the human soldiers to be executed for his pleasure. His laughter, however, was cut short as a bullet ripped through his refined and decorated armor, piercing his arm. His guards were swift to defend him, and while the king retreated, he was mad with rage as his army clashed. The dwarven king grew angrier and angrier as the humans toppled his army, and even the king's guards like their metals were wood from a tree. He had trained under his master, and his master, and his master before him to make the strongest metals and refine them tenfold in the forges. And yet, they were winning. He decided to flank around the human forces and take the city while destroying the humans' flank in a diabolical move. As his army charged from the depths and caves and forts to the side of the human army, he could see the Elven Council making a magical sigil in the sky. He despised magic, as metal was clearly stronger in every way, and his hatred for it lured him into the city, even if he would be sandwiched by pathetic humans and Elven forces. Elves. The Elven Council knew the dwarves were fast approaching, but their sigil of destruction was close to being finished. He was gleeful as he saw the black steel armor of the Dwarven King's guards in the path of the magical beam that would soon be his downfall. However, the sigil soon broke as the sky broke into fire and light. Explosions of great magnitude were happening all over the city, as thousands of year-old buildings crumbled and bridges strained under the advance of the human armada. The High Priestess entered the Council's sanctum, heaving and fuming. They should have her executed for such a blasphemous appearance in their court. But they'd hear her words, even if it was just for a few moments. As it turns out, the humans had created a magical golems with wheels and strange wands to shoot death and rain fire on their forces. The tank, the humans called it. Dwarves. His army crumbled, unlike anything the elves had ever done, even on their strongest days. The human forces had not just magic wands like the alps, but mechanical beasts that generated explosions and flames anywhere they looked. They were appalled by the use of both metal and magic, especially such basic metals. The dwarven king charged towards the machine to destroy the pathetic armor that they had shown him before. His great axe struck the metal armor of the beast before shattering into pieces as an elven sigil of destruction flared on the tank's side where it struck and he exploded. Elves. The elven council was pleased with the turn of events as the sigil roared to life with the final ritual completed. Their largest sigil of destruction shot a beam of divine light to destroy everything in its path. Both the dwarves and the humans were fighting right in the wake of their beam and would surely die. However the council was shocked at the aftermath. Dwarf-like beasts of metal and even foot soldiers were alive. His forces were crushed by his own offense, the price he had to pay to defend the situation. It turns out the humans had metals that halted their attack and their foot soldiers crawled out of their holes of metal and magical seals. He was in shock at the sight and worried on what he would do next. However, his brain didn't have time to think, as a bullet ripped apart his skull and horrified the lesser leaders in the council. They started to run like chickens, but one by one they fell. Humans. The dwarves and the elves had been fighting for a great time, but human governments had only recently discovered the presence of elves on their soil, let alone battles raging across their own cities. Scientists from nations originally at odds worked together to learn the ways the two fought and refine it to their own way to fight. It wasn't long that a scientist figured out that ruins could be inscribed on metal and not just stone, creating a much more powerful magical barrier. He'd used it to make a desk lamp that wouldn't need a cord. They learned to inscribe tanks' armors with ruins to protect the tanks from the inside, and use offensive sigils on the outside to stop enemies from piercing the armour. Tank shells were enhanced to increase their effect against armour of the dwarves, pierced shields of the elves and destroyed both equally under the wrath of the human government. They created pocket dimensions from elven bags to allow soldiers to throw down many portable bunkers to withstand even the hardest of attacks. Their new trinkets guaranteed victory over the elves and the dwarves, but peace was always a better option. Their delegates escaped in the nick of time with ruins of teleportation, first teleported into their pockets after they got searched, then used later to escape the greedy clutches of the dwarven king and their elven council. The Rune of Teleportation was first re-engineered and used as infinite trash can that chucked trash from the office into the sun. Aftermath. The human government didn't enjoy their swift victory and was saddened by their new race's hostile governments. But that wouldn't matter. Despite the protests of some people, of the dwarven civilians and elves that were allowed to live peacefully as long as they lived under the rule of the human government... Unified under the threat of dwarven and elven walls on their doorstep, it took time longer for the elves to grow into human society, and soon they were unrecognizable from human counterparts. The battle only took three hours. End of story. Story number two. The wrong hostage written by Slow AD two five eight four Reaver Captain Ting tang Oof, how's this thing work again? I am proud to report we have successfully kidnapped a human for ransom. Oh have you now? Tell me, war chief, but this thing looks scary. Was this man someone important? Is he someone that we could expect a great ransom for? Uh she, sir. Yes, by all accounts, she is very popular, galaxy-wide. The captain flinched a bit, but tried to cover it up with an eyestalk scritch. A female, you say? Oh, oh uh, those are risky, shipmate. They could be somebody really scary's mother, or daughter, or little sister, or just a nice hot neighbor, or... Uh... His voice was starting to reveal a panic pitch of escalation, so he cut himself off. We need to be careful about who may come to look and to rescue her, is all I'm saying. The warlord nodded sagely. I understand. I'd say I did a really good job, sir. We should expect a truly phenomenal ransom payment for such a ex- A siren sounded in the wrong center, a proximity hyperjump in relatively nearby, a human ship searching the area. The captain felt an itch of growing unspecified alarm, that happened sooner than I expected. There must be a massive scale mobilization going on to have seen one of those already. Full stealth mode. The lights dimmed and the sounds of various machines around them quieted to near absolute silence as four more ships hyper jumped in, scattered all around the ship. The distant ships began casting our powerful subspace scan waves, clearly intent on finding them. Just, uh,. How popular was this female? He asked as twelve more ships hybrid jumped in and began scanning with every erg of their ship's power. In a now clearly expansive and coordinated scanning grid. I mean, uh, she wasn't a beloved princess or or, or something, right? Um, no. It is a bit confusing. Uh, The human pop culture and all, the warlord replied uncertainly slowly starting to realize the rapidly escalating threat all around them. The captain faced Tentacle in dismay. Please tell me you didn't kidnap a pop star. But, but, but you said to get someone important and well-knowner. I would never expected such... Look, kid, this is one of those lines in the sand that we talked about. There are the rich, the powerful, the political, the somewhat obscure royalty, and... Uh, then there are the beloved by literally billions of absolutely terrifying hue. The reaver war being shuddered as a subspace wave rippled through it, casting a sub-dimensional eddy currents around the hull that was then immediately slammed and locked onto by the heavy particle beam carrier wave conduits from every human ship in the area. The war barge was solidly locked onto and was utterly doomed. Any sort of truly nasty things of the human war inventiveness could be shuttled through those carrier wave conduits with considerable acceleration. But the first to arrive was a powerful, over-reverbed comms-hail. Reverb this is the Coast Guard Cutter, Fafo. You are to stand down and prepare to be boarded. There'll be no quarter given for any negotiations. The captain looked at his war boss with incredulity. By the unholy dark pulse, kid, just who did you abduct? Uh, humans uh, very rarely ever hail with such aggressive intimidation and fancy use of words. Uh, someone uh, uh, famous and uh, important. J- 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 just as you commanded. The war chief was now quivering and pale, with his tipped tentacles tucked between his legs. Aye. I- I never thought their reaction would be so-so. You will release the immortal Taylor Swift immediately and remand her to our custody. The captain flopped back into his eggshell-woven command basket and chucked, Oh, you absolute fool. You have no idea of the fanbase that you have just awoken. End of story. Passing on the Curse, written by Dr. Blackjack, 21. In this world, there are many cursed items tied to the spirits of those who suffered. If you come into possession of one, the spirits will haunt you until you die. Or until you pass it on to someone else. But there is some good news. You can't just slip the item into somebody's pocket. They have to accept it winningly. That's why people try to pass things off in the weirdest of ways. Someone handing you a button along with their change, don't accept it. It might be cursed. Be careful about the gifts with sentimental value. Avoid garage and yard sales like the plague. Or whatever you do. If you do get a cursed item, don't be like some assholes and hand them over to little children. You see, kids are great like that. If they're young enough, they trust everyone and everything. You hand a kid something, anything really, and they would happily accept it with a big grin. Best I can tell, that's what happened to me. You see, she's been around as long as I can remember. I call her Mrs. No Face. Some of my earliest memories were looking up in my bed to see her hovering there. At the time, I didn't understand that people were supposed to have faces or what blood and gore were. I just knew that Mrs. No Face was always there for me and always would be. My parents weren't around all that much. Well, my dad never was. As far as I can tell, he ran off before I was born. But my mom, well, let's just say that I'm sure my mom was doing her best. You see, she never wanted a kid, as she was quick to tell me at almost any opportunity. But at least she made sure that I was fed, clothed, and had a bed to sleep in. And even got a present every Christmas, so I was luckier than many. When mom was at work late at night, I could watch TV, but whenever she had a guy friends over, I had to go to my room when I was five. There wasn't much in my room. There were a couple of picture books from my first few years, an old brass button I'd always had, and my new set of crayons from the most recent Christmas. That's how my mom first learned about Mrs. No-Face. You see, I drew one of the first things any kid draws, a family picture. It was crude picture like you would expect. Stick figures and clothes, with only features being simplistically drawn faces. But when Mom was in nice dress and I was in my pajamas, Mrs. No Face had on her bloody white gown, and where her face was supposed to be, I drew a black void, with crimson around the edges, where it looked like her face had been torn away. I don't remember the exact conversation that followed when she saw the picture but I do remember her asking about the picture and reacting rather strongly when I told her about Mrs. No-Face. Not long after that, I met the doctor. The doctor was one of my mom's guy friends, but she told him that she'd cut him a deal on the price if you would talk to my kid about her weird-ass drawings. The doctor never told me his name. He said officially he was never here, but he did like talking about drawings and Mrs. No-Face. He told my mom that at my age, Having an imaginary friend was normal, and I probably just got her from something I saw on TV late at night, but didn't understand. However, my imaginary friend never went away. Eventually, I started going to school, and I learned very quickly that my mom wasn't the only one bothered by the drawings of Mrs. No-Face. So finally, I stopped drawing her or speaking with her in public. That seemed to be enough to appease the teachers, but most of the kids still avoided me. They called me weird and spooky. Maybe that was because I was obsessed with ghosts and monsters. Or maybe it was because mysterious things happened around me. At least, according to them. I still remember that time Rick hit me. I'd never really seen Mrs. No-Face interact with anyone else. But she picked him up and tossed him a few feet away. He wasn't hurt. But he sure was scared. And so were the other kids who saw. I got put into detention for that one. Also, whenever people played tricks on me, it always seemed to backfire. There was a time Alex propped a bunch of dirty erasers above the door so they'd fall on me when I walked through, only for Mrs. No-Face to grab them before they fell and then throw them back at him one at a time. As we got older, the pranks got crueller, but Mrs. No-Face was always there to protect me. When kids threw stones, she'd throw them back. Cruel letters always seemed to find their way back to the students who wrote them. Everywhere I went, kids would always whisper to each other, calling me witch or monster. But I didn't mind at all that much. I was used to being alone, with only Mrs. No-Face keep me company. And at some point, I figured out people found entities like Mrs. No-Face scary. Not everyone thought horror movies were secretly comedies like I did, but I couldn't imagine monsters actually hurting people. After all, Mrs. No-Face never actually hurt anyone. Not seriously, anyway. As the years passed and everyone got older, rocks stopped getting thrown and people just started ignoring me. Slowly, Mrs. No-Face seemed to appear to me less and less as well. By the time I graduated and got a job, I'd go days or weeks without seeing her around. Though she still often showed up behind me in mirrors, which always made me smile. By this point, I was starting to have a relatively normal life, at least by most people's standards. I worked a nine-to-five that I hated just little enough not to quit, got my own apartment, and even went on the occasional date, few of which ever went anywhere. I lost contact with Mom. I'm grateful she just didn't abandon me as a kid, but we'd never really been a family. And once I could take care of myself, there just wasn't a connection there. I remember swearing that if I ever had a kid, I wouldn't just let them go. We'd be happy family, like the one I never had. Then, late one night, when I was walking home, everything changed. It started when I heard footsteps behind me. I didn't think much of it at first. It wasn't common to run into other people walking around the neighborhood this time of night. But it wasn't unheard of either. With the footsteps getting closer, and closer, as if something was chasing me. I picked up my pace, but so did they. I broke into a run, and so did they. I was trying to think if there was anywhere public and open this time of night, when I rounded a corner and saw two monsters waiting for me. One of them had a half-melted face, much of his skin was missing, and his left eye was hanging by a strand. Next to him stood a cloud, but his face was distorted. His mouth was too big, his teeth were too long, and his eyes looked like they were bulging out of his head. I turned and tried to run across the street, but got tackled from behind. Looking up from the ground, I could see a werewolf crouching over me, laughing as it brandished. A knife? When he spoke, his mouth didn't move. Hey! Empty out your pockets right now, and I wouldn't scream if you know what's good for you. I nodded silently and dug through my pockets, dumping everything on the ground. My wallet, phone, even my pocket change. The wolfman scooped it all up, laughing and calling me a good mark. But then the wolfman froze. He lifted his knife up and started shouting, Hey, you! Do you want to die? Get out of here now! I didn't see who he was talking to, and based on the way the other two were looking around, they didn't either. Finally, the clown spoke up. Hey, man, you messing with us. Now's not the time. Let's just take the stuff and run. But the wolfman's hand started to shake, and his voice sounded afraid. "Ah, I'm warning you. Get the hell away from us now, or else... Finally, the half-burned man reached up and tore off his Halloween mask, looking around before turning back to his accomplice. Are you tripping? There is no one there. Get your shit together and let's go. By now, the man had fallen back and was looking up, pointing his shaky knife at the air as his voice reached a panicked pitch. "Ah, I'm warning you. Get away from me! Leave me alone! He started, swiping at the air. And that was when something odd happened. The wolfman's hand froze. Then he raised it straight up. Then, after a moment, he started hovering as if being picked up by his hand. When his mask flew off, it was clear that he was sobbing. Please! Just just let me go! Please! By now, the two friends were grabbing onto him as if trying to pull him down. But then they were both thrown bodily aside as if punched by some invisible force, and he started screaming incoherently, as if in great pain. A moment later, his face was torn clean off, and he dropped to the ground, lifeless. The other two muggers ran away. I was about to run too, but there on the ground was all my stuff. Thinking that leaving my ID or phone sitting next to a crime scene like this was probably a mistake, I gathered it all up pocketing it all but then stopped when i saw something i hadn't thought much about in a long time there among the loose change was an old beat-up brass button i'd had it for as long as i can remember and always thought of it as good luck i reached down slowly and grabbed a hold of it as soon as it was in my hands i could see mrs Snowface hovering over the body of my would-be attacker years have gone by since then for a while mrs Snowface was a significant presence in my life again. I spoke with her daily and swore to myself that I would never neglect her. And then I met my partner. It wasn't a particularly noteworthy meeting. We worked together. And eventually he asked me if I wanted to get coffee. Coffee became drinks. Drinks became dinners. And before I knew it, we were going steady. At first, Mrs. Snowface hovered around him constantly. I was almost afraid that she'd attack him like the mugger. But over time, she slowly backed away giving us more space. Eventually, she stopped showing up on our dates altogether. After we got married, she slowly stopped hanging around again. Nowadays, I only see her in mirrors behind me, but even when she was not around, I knew that she was watching and protecting me. I've realized in many ways she was the mother I never really had. Aside from my husband and now daughter, Isabel, she means more to me than anyone, which, is why it's so hard to say goodbye. I know she won't be gone, not really, but I'll never see her again. And fighting back tears, as I write this, when I look into the blackness of the computer screen, I can see her there, hovering behind me. I wonder if she understands what I'm about to do. I wonder if it'll make her happy or sad. I hope she understands how much she's meant to me, and why I must do what I'm about to do. You see, during my pregnancy, I got sick. Really sick. And I couldn't treat it because it would kill my precious Isabel. Now, it's all too late. I have to break that promise to myself about never abandoning my child. Even Mrs. Snowface can't protect me this time. So, all I can do is leave Isabel, my beloved daughter, the most precious gift that I've ever been given. An old brass button End of story. They do it on fecking purpose. Written by Swiftheart. <laughs> <laughs> My glob's name, Ken, I oughta put a proximity alert on you. Ken looked slowly towards the origin of the shrill shriek, eyes dead set forward until his head was perfectly aligned with Paul. Oh, what's up? Ken asked, of a slowly climbing ball. Ken is like a different person once you get him talking. He animates like a sleeping robot. That may sound endearing, it is not. It is creepy. If you saw him in the dark, which I have, you'd be of the same opinion. Oh, nothing. I can just never get over how quiet you humans are. Even on solid floors. (laughs) Uh, I guess humans are just naturally light on their feet. Lies. Filthy lies! He weighs triple of bull's weight. He should be stomping and shaking the whole floor while he walks. Did you get my mail on the way up? Ken's face lit up into a polite smile, all neat teeth showing and eyes opening to their fullest. He twisted his left arm violently and at sharp angles, each movement before the next in a gruesome show of flexibility. He placed his hand in a small pouch he kept attached to his back and pulled out an envelope. Never once breaking eye contact with Bowl. his arm journeyed back blindingly fast and stopped when it was perfectly extended. A small Cuban hand. Sure did, and I got you a little something while I was down there. He reached into his pants pocket and pulled out a bar of chocolate. He lobbed it at Bole who caught it. Bole's eyes lit up. Ooh, I could kiss you, Ken. Ken gave a hearty laugh and sent a flying kiss to Bull before walking out, his face going blank. They all love Ken. They think he's just being normal, average, well-meaning, well-mannered human. But I know he's not. I know it. I've seen it. I saw it once on my way home. I had to take a different route due to the hovercar engine becoming a ball of plasma on the main road last year. Some punks were racing them at night. And one too many overclocks later, the cooling system just couldn't handle it. The whole maglev system got fried, and they were replacing it now. I had to take a detour. And I saw Ken while I stopped. He was smiling, not like he usually does. It looked calmer. His lips were just barely curved upwards. His eyes were relaxed. I could almost hear his footsteps echoing in the quiet evening. Then he spotted me and I thought I was going to meet my ancestors, he just smiled at me. Not his normal smile, no, just a small smile. And he kept walking like he had never seen me. I went home, and it clicked. I saw all the truth. He was doing it on fucking purpose, all of it. He was as normal as one can be, aside from the sick satisfaction he got from tormenting co-workers who were unaware of human norms. He has been acting the same while in the office. He never wavers in his act, not when others are around. Last month, me and him were by ourselves in the office by coincidence. At one point, he looked around with his dead eyes, spotted no one except me, and then smiled again. His face became alive and it turned on some music from Lou's workstation. Then he started dancing. His steps reverberated with a deep bass along the walls. He stretched and stood taller than I'd ever seen him before. He went to the coffee and he had turned into a completely different person. No, species. He wasn't human as the rest of us knew humans for. No, this treacherous Cranton was something different, something natural. He walked to my desk, sipped his coffee and with the most sympathetic and calming voice told me, No one will believe you. Then he sat down at his desk and continued humming and tapping to the music. Little does he know that I have been planning, making schemes of my own. I was consulted on possible new hires and saw a human amongst the possible hires. I knew that I would only have to have the other human to reveal the absurdity of Ken. Just one crack in the facade he'd been building would fall like a pile of dry sand. Oh! Ken has been lovely around our office. I believe the other human would be a great addition to our ranks, and I believe that it would be wonderful if Ken had another of his kind to converse with. My insights churned with an insidious lie that I spouted. I was not made for lying. But against Ken, I would go against my very nature. He has been great indeed. Even Ken really took to a liking to having another human on board. Thanks for your input, and between you and me, Everyone said the same of Ken, so no need to be embarrassed about it. Did Ken not see what other human would do to his efforts of terrorizing and traumatizing the office? Each and every day I watched the rest of my team getting harassed by Ken, and none of them even knew that I was being done to them. But I knew this would all stop soon enough. Finally, finally I could have vindication for all the times I got scorned for speaking ill of Ken. Then the blessed day arrived. I was shining like a star and so close to exploding into a supernova. That's how excited I was. But then I felt a disturbance in the force. Now to the very corner of my eye, I saw Ken smirking at me. It felt cold. The lights dimmed and I could barely see. Some of the more easily frightened started making a ruckus. I could still see the lanky bipedal form stalking towards the middle of the group. It was slow and quietly hobbling towards the middle of the pack. Jules ran down my spine as I saw Ken holding a light switch in his hands, now that my eyes had adjusted to the darkness. He was grinning wildly again, but it was real this time. There was joy behind those calculating eyes. And then, The lights turned back on, and then the screams started. And then I saw Samantha for the first time. Her face was as cold as stone. Her eyes completely blanked as she slowly turned her head towards the nearest person. And then her face animated, and she started speaking with venomous glee. Ouch, my ears, what happened? Everyone just went dark, and I tried to walk towards the noise. And is everyone all right? And... THEY WERE DOING IT ON fucking PURPOSE! End of story. Story number two, technically by Echoing Cascade. When the Silos found Earth, they did what they always did. When faced with a technologically primitive planet, they sent troops to subjugate its inhabitants. They had done the same many times before every time, learning something new and adjusting their strategies. This time, however, the lesson they learned was fear. In the lush jungles when the trees whispered, in the frozen fields when the snow laughed, in the arid deserts when the sand prayed, and in the urban areas when all noise abruptly died out, they came to dread the sudden cessation sound for it would always be followed by the roar of guns. Any notion of occupying that planet was quickly abandoned. The resistance from the humans was bad enough, but the planet itself seemed to want them all dead. They pulled all of their troops and were on the verge of leaving when Admiral Rodar decided to glass the planet from orbit in a fit of rage. Two lone figures were standing by a street lamp. A female figure directly under the lamp, all but invisible in the glare of the light. The other, a male right next to her, yet the shadow so dark that he was nothing but a silhouette. The woman twirled under the light before speaking to the man sitting next to her. They'll be annihilated, you know. I have never stepped in when they were on the edge of destruction before. His response was tinged with sadness. Before they face destruction at each other's hands, this time it's different. Is it? She laughed, but it wasn't in a mocking tone. They've always been your favorites. You're the one who sees to every one of them. His answer was quick, too quick, but she knew it. She shook her head. I'm only there at the beginning. You, on the other hand, you stay with them for the duration. A silent friend who knows them better than they'll ever know themselves. He sighed deeply, all semblance of reticence evaporating. there are rules. If there was something I could do, I would. A loophole. Anything. The woman giggled, and between her hands a mirror made of water appeared. Inside Admiral Radar could be seen talking to his aide, a drink in hand. I hate this fucking planet. These shaved monkeys are bad enough, but everything out there seems tailor-made to end life. The weather, the geography, the flora, the fauna, microorganisms. (sighs) I swear, it's a fracking death world. The mirror froze, then shattered into snow. Will that do? asked life. That will do, answered death. The Silo's fleet was engulfed in a shadow cast by no light, and every captain received the visit of a creature clad in dread and armored in finality. He only spoke once. Get. Off. My. Lawn. The fleet left never to return. Decades later, when humanity began to travel through the stars, they met many races. some friendly, others less so. But one thing they all had in common, they never visited Earth. When asked why, they would all answer the same thing. Earth is Death's world, and he does not approve of visitors. End of story. Or well, The Stowaway Helper, written by Fiema Galathon. We had realized that we had a stowaway somewhere in the third month of the journey. It normally would be a problem, but if they managed to evade security for three months and never made any mess or excessive noise, we concluded that it was probably fine. Well, we weren't entirely wrong about this. The first time I managed to get a glimpse of our accidental passenger was when I was carrying some crates with equipment back to storage. Who's just for a split second, two luminous eyes in the dim hallway, a bit of movement out of the corner of my eye. I startled, but they only skidded away, not paying much attention to me. They weren't violent or malevolent, probably, hopefully, the mechanic reported that someone organized the tools in the mech lab unprompted, which was unheard of. The mech lab was a huge mess most of the time. The evidence we found around suggested that it was our storeway. They even left a weird pictogram on a drawing board high enough that a normal crew member would need the ladder to reach. Then a lot of little things started happening around the ship. A clean room there, a fixed leak here, and the bored AI that giggled when faced with the question, where did the shiny new booster for the engine come from? Sick crew members swearing they saw somebody check up on them at night, singing softly till they fell asleep. It seemed like a weird creature that had hidden in our ship took a liking to us, enough to dote on us like a mother hen. We started calling them helper. Helper gradually grew less and less cautious when sneaking around the ship, sometimes allowing us to see them. Rumours spread that they were big, tall, with two eyes and long limbs, moving fluently like a shadow in the night. Every time I glimpsed them in a better light, a chill went down my spine. I knew logically that they were kind and nice, but my instincts always whispered to me that they were a danger. They seemed to like me a lot, though. Sometimes a soft chuckle reached me when I was rambling around the food crates from above. High, high from the under-ceiling, nicely wrapped pockets of rations somewhat appeared on my desk when I wasn't looking after a long stretch of work, too neat and precise to be made by anybody of the crew. At times, at night, I could hear soft creaking noises of the hallway floor groaning under the steps of someone heavy, and an eerie, softly sung lullaby echoing down the hall in a tune that I never heard from any culture. The scientists were excited at the prospect of having an accidental passenger for an unknown species on board. I was somewhat worried, to be honest. If they were from an undiscovered new species, how could we be sure that they would have enough food that was actually healthy for them on board? One day, I was tinkering on a piece of turbine, trying to get it to stop clicking at random intervals. This sound annoyed me to no end and probably meant something was stuck in the fan. I growled when it jammed, a muffled curse escaping me. I felt like crying. A deep space depression caught me finally that week, and we had another half a year before we reached our destination. Over the sound of my hiccuping breath, I noticed the floor groan behind me. A gust of warm, lightly wet air hitting the back of my head, and I froze. The footsteps stopped, and a deep, lilting voice sounded from just above my head. Hey, uh Need help with that? Helper's accent was atrocious, their voice box barely managing to make the correct sounds. But they were still, unmistakably speaking, in my birth language. I yelped, jumped from the desk, and turned. The screwdriver held defensively in my hand my first chance to see them in full revealed things that had been better kept in the shadows. Halper looked wrong, like if somebody took a proper, normal person, stretched them out, and painted the thing that resulted from that in a weird clash of colours. Their eyes were too sharp, too bright, too light, their hands just a tad bit too spindly and sharply edged. And they were big, big enough that they needed to bend their head down, even in these high, airy rooms of the ship. I screeched in fright, squeezing my eyes shut. Helper made a soft, broken noise and skidded back, the floor groaning under them. Shh, don't be afraid. I'm not... uh," They groaned, probably searching for the right, appropriate word. I not heard people. Little people, little people, you could not cry. Please. The scratchy sound of their voice and the broken grammar nearly sent me into a bordering on hysterical laughing fit. My sanity, slowly but surely slipping away from me. My name is Jahaher, not Little People. Little People is a plural, too. It should be Little Person, if you want to be precise. I found myself saying on automatic, startling at the delicate troll of affirmation from helper. Nice meet Jahaher. My name is George. They introduced themselves. The foreign cluster of sounds at the end probably was the name. "'I be one of these species human. We call us human. You call you?' they asked, curious. "'Ah, we are Habilta. Nice to meet you.' I risk a peek and relax, seeing them safely hidden by the shadows. A brilliant laugh came from the shadow, where Halper hid himself in a brief flash of white teeth and luminous eyes. "'Habilta. uh, Good name. You look friendlike. You look like a little creature from home. Good creature's name fits.' uh, I like you. You help me. I help you. We discover space together. Good deal, they asked, and left me standing on my desk, gaping at the shadows in stunned silence. Yeah, yeah, sounds reasonable, I managed to say, blinking intensely. Good! Now, oh, need help for the machine? The eyes in the shadows blinked back at me. No, 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 I think I'm good, I said weakly, jumping off the desk. Hmm. I go now, then. I, if need, yell in storage. We'll come." The door opened a bit, and the spindly figure slipped out, leaving me with a jammed turbine and my heart threatening to jump out of my chest. End of story. Story number two, Featherless bipeds, written by Hanson III. Among all the creatures of the universe, there is one commonality between them all. We love to fly. We are made for it formed by our histories on our respective homeworlds what does a terrestrially evolved species love to do stay on the ground like they were supposed to you should be correct if the universe operated logically there is however one anomaly these featherless bipeds that stand out like a sore thumb everywhere they go i'm talking about humans of course Creatures with dense bones and legs and arms made for running on solid ground rather than soaring. So, how come they walk amongst us, the ones built for flight? It was a dream as old as their civilization to fly. One does not need to look long for myths of humans gluing feathers to themselves with wax, or motion pictures of humans taming beasts with wings, riding on their backs through the sky. It has even found a way into their language. Free as a bird, for example. Their flags are adorned with creatures calling the sky their home. The symbol of wisdom in ancient times was an avian, the owl. An eagle, another avian, has adorned many military uniforms and seals throughout the ages. Insane, if you think about it. Evolution should have thoroughly ingrained a deep fear of heights in them, for they should never see anything else but the solid ground beneath them. There are such individuals amongst them, feeling terror and sickness at the sight of distant ground. And still, a considerable number of them throw themselves off cliffs with wings made of plastic for fun. The wish to fly is and always has been inherently human, but nature is cruel, denying them this for generations, deterred they worked through the ages tinkering and crafting until the first humans were set free flying in beasts of metal canvas and fire it only took them 66 years after their first flight through the air to go and travel through the void of space and landing on their moon sixty six years that is only one generation of them a boy who witnessed their first flying contraptions when he was little could see humanity walking on the moon way faster than anyone else in the galaxy. They had tasted the freedom that we had enjoyed since our beginning, grabbed it, and never let go. What impressed me the most, however, is how much better they are at flying through the air than our so-called naturals. The machines they use, called planes, can fly through the air at several times the speed of sound. The record for the fastest flight amongst the rest of the galaxy is only 30% of the spirit of sound for that species' homeworld, it is not far-fetched to say that they have beaten nature at her own game, evolving for flight faster and better in some regards than any of its creations ever could. I quite like these humans. Yes, they may not be avians like myself and body, but their spirit soars higher and more freely than any of ours. End of story. Old Salvation, written by FarmWinch4275. Many years ago, I will die. The signs came suddenly. Sudden migrations of birds. Disappearances of towns and lakes vanishing inexplicably. Then came the fall. Rains stopped. Droughts brought our empire to its knees in the space of months. And happened so fast that we couldn't respond before our cities became gravesites and battlefields. Peasants and lords alike could no longer carry on and died to the stinging winds and collapsing roofs as the desert sands swallowed everything. Mines that supplied us with the much needed metals became death traps as the air ventilation became clogged with sand. Fishing industries died off as the oceans vanished. Winds picked up, and those caught with no protection suffered greatly or died miserable deaths as the sand peeled their skin off. Kingdoms that stood for a hundred generations, vanished. as the soldiers that defended them abandoned their posts or died defending them from the desperate crowds. We are of three races, the Rithani, the Laurenti, and the Thrak. The Rithani were once masters of the jungle lands, thick forests of swamps and beasts and bested muck that lived in high trees. The Laurenti, a small dwarf-like being that were the shortest of all. Lacking in brutality, but making up for it in intellect. The great sky towers are the envy of the world. The track of my people. A middle ground of farmers, miners, and scholars simply making our way in the world. A harrowing tale of sadness and survival followed with us for the next ten years after our last city was swallowed by the sand. The Rithani were the first to abandon their homes. Their tall bodies and thick hides could withstand the burning sands by huddling together during the storms. Their backs to the desert as they used each other as cover. The men would all form a circle around the hole dug into the camp before the storm, put their heads down, and use their own bodies as shields to cover their families from the scoring storms. Their skill in hunting provided much needed meat from the horrors that now scoured the deserts. The Laurenti used their great craftsmanship to create temporary shelters and tents that could withstand the sands, clothes that would stop the burning storms. Men would use their own bodies as tent pegs to hold their fabric and leathers as loft to keep the women and children safe from the storms as the winds relentlessly attacked them. While the storms raged, each man took his turn against the storm a new man replacing one who fell from pain, for the others were cared for in the center. Their craftsmanship rivaled all and would use this to effect to create a high unbreakable tent structure. The Thrak survived by using the sand dunes to shield us from the sands, using clothes on our own bodies to create makeshift camps, protecting us from the great storm. Cramped quarters and careful coordination forced us to carefully manage with the resources we had. The men held our tents steady. The women quickly stitched fabrics torn from the winds, or helped drag their husbands to the apothecaries as they fell from exhaustion. Thrak farmers would carry along with them small pots of plants they used to grow a meagre food source. Our numbers dwindled to barely a tenth of what they were within the first five years. We saw no need to fight each other, no need for conflict. At this point, it was all together or all to the grave. What began after this was the key to our survival. Rithani men were our wall, protecting us from the desert predators and burning sands. They held up tents and used their own muscles to carry wounded from their posts and shielding all of us from the storms when we couldn't put up tents in time for sudden storms. Track workmen and farmers would grow our food and water supplies, easing the use of the transport of goods and the plants. They grew, becoming staple food sources and the source of fabrics that we used in tents. Our doctors were the best of all and could heal whatever wounds the desert inflicted. Laurenti's artisans would create fabrics from discarded plant leaves that would hold up to extensive punishment, and they would quickly erect tents and fortifications to defend us from the storms. What little meat we could scour from the desert beasts was given to the mothers and children. The rest of us survived on a mushroom that was nutritious and gave us what we needed to survive, grew anywhere and fast, but was disgusting in flavor. After around five years of work, we had created a system where we could work together lawlessly to survive the storms, but to become prosperous was something that became nearly impossible. And so, continued. For fifteen more years, we could march on the sands, surviving against all odds. Every storm that came, we would hold fast, but we were losing hope. Elders would tell us stories of blue waters, fresh and clean, that would be drunk from without boiling. Stories of tall green grass and oceans of old purple grasslands and the flower fields. We had grown as a society, doubling our numbers at this point and reaching levels of stability that we can never hope to achieve at a total of 27,000. It could not be helped. It could not be this. Any attempts we made to better our situation with building and structures would fall. Materials were scarce, and what we did have we needed to maintain shelter, tools, and weapons. What materials we could spare were oft cast into attempts to build wild sites or permanent structures that we could use as we traveled. Wood was becoming increasingly scarce, and the only reliable fuel source became dried husks of cactus that grew in the dunes. We were alive, we could survive, but there was nothing beyond it. We had a culture, but not art to reflect it. Stories to tell, but no way to record it. We had creativity, but no way to do it without disappearing. We had a soul, but no place to worship. Most times, we didn't even have a place where we could bury our dead, nor the time to do it. Most would be simply be wrapped in a shroud and left to be swallowed by the sands, to die forgotten in the dark. they finally came to a head one day, an old man on his deathbed. He'd said goodbye to his family and lay in sadness as he resigned himself to the end, to be left behind to suffer the sands as the group moved on. It was the only real option we had. Those who could not survive were laid on a bed, wrapped in rags, and left to die. We had no other choice. He lay in quiet for a moment, and then began to howl in despair. God survive! is there no end to the torment you bring upon us? What have we done to deserve this torture? He said in between sobs of despair as another storm approached. We have laid to rest our hatred and disgust. We have laid bare the lives that we have told and forgiven the crimes that we have committed. We are together as one. Is this not enough? These words permeated everyone's soul as he lay in his bed, weakly holding his hands up in prayer. The telltale rumble of a sudden storm approaching. There was no time to set up camp proper. So we had to huddle and weather the storm together. Rithani men gathered around us and held the group together with a practiced precision. Tents and what rags could be found quickly used to huddle children and mothers to cover them from the storms. Please, gods above, I use my last breath to beg for forgiveness. What more do you want from us? We can build no temples to ask you for help, as the sands destroy them and bury them. We have done all we can, and we can do no more. Please, we beg you for mercy, he yelled out as the thunderous roar approached. Please, give us anything. I want my family to feel grass under their feet again. He choked and spluttered. It was any moment now. I could give anything, he coughed and spluttered, to see my family smile again. His chest failed to rise. And like that, he was gone. The camp fell to tears as the storm hit. The storm was the worst it had ever been. It came suddenly and brought with it a small pebbles that smashed into the hides of our Ruthani brethren like arrows against armor their cries of pain mixed with the barking orders of their commanders filled the air hold the line they would shout as the sands would strip pieces of their skin away mothers cradled their terrified children and couples shared a final embrace we all knew we would not survive this one without massive losses as the old man's corpse vanished into the sands then suddenly it stopped. The howling winds and scouring stands just stopped. We were confused. What had just happened? It's a trick. The pain from the storm must be breaking our minds, we thought. It's a mirage. A dream. Then one woman's scream told us what was going on. Machines! The machines! She cried. We looked up from our desperate huddle and looked up to the sea. We were surrounded by four massive machines. They were enormous, reaching hundreds of feet in height. Six massive mechanical legs holding the bulbous head aloft as it stared down at us, with massive glowing purple eyes. Beyond the machines, we could clearly see some kind of field of energy holding the storm back, as if it were never there. Silence. Nought but dead silence for many minutes as we stood in reverent awe at the sight. For what seemed an eternity, we simply stood there as the storm dissipated. It was over fast, and for the first time we could see it clearly. It was not just an advancing column of dust as it always was. It was a twisting, spinning monstrosity of dust, and the rocks that had charged its way through the dunes. It would have killed most of us, if not all. As shadow slowly cast itself on the ground, covering us completely as if a god was reaching his hand across the sky to shield us from the burning sun. We looked up to see a ship, a massive ship, miles long, slowly lumbering its way effortlessly through the dusky skies and coming to a rest between two of the machines. We were stunned, silent, no concept of what we were seeing. What was this? Within moments of the massive ship landing, on the sands, with a loud thud, a ramp opened up and down this ramp walked a bipedal creature, clad in reflective black armor. It was covered in strange symbols and insignias, looking to be made of a strange reflective metal that had on its head a glass covering what we presumed to be its face. It held by its left side, with its five-fingered hand, a strange rectangular item. A book. This creature moved to the end of the ramp, slapping on the sands and stood there. It then used a hand to gesture one of us to come forward. That one was me. I broke the line using the moment of confusion and approached the creature in a daze. By the time I was noticed, it was too late to come get me if something went wrong. I was mystified, entranced. The silence of the passing storm must have broken me. This creature was around three-quarters the size of a Rathani, so only slightly taller than me. He looked down and held the book in front of them, opening it to the first page. It was made of metallic substance. He opened the first page to show a beautiful drawing of this very moment. He looked at me expectantly, and I blinked. He turned the page and showed another drawing, this time of two bubbles emanating from our images, one had symbols of triangles and squares, and the other had symbols of X's and Y's. He turned the page, and it was a picture of some strange device in his hand. He turned the page again, and showed a picture of him showing my character how to fit it to its head. The next page showed the two characters speaking again, this time both speech bubbles were in the same pattern of X's and Y's. I got the general idea, and smiled. He took this as a sign that I understood and handed me the device in the picture. I fumbled a bit, and it was a bit uncomfortable, but after he adjusted the device a bit to fit me better, I could get it on me. Hello, uh, do, do you understand me? He asked. Yes, I do. Uh, who are you? I asked, able to understand each other perfectly. My name is Julius. I'm a human. Why, are you here? what is this? I asked, perplexed. He reached down to his arm and pressed a button, and the doors to his ship opened with the top-ramp, Salvation. He turned the page of the book, showing an illustration of our people running into the ship. He turned the page again, showing a picture of us eating hearty meals, sleeping in warm beds. More pictures followed, as he told us the story without saying a word, as our peoples travelled the stars in his ship, growing, prospering, learning the new technology and machines then finally meeting his fellow humans as we arrived near a new planet, one of blue oceans and green grass. I was hyperventilating. I dropped the book and nearly fell over. I quickly turned to my people. I had, at that moment, the biggest smile I could muster plastered across my face. I held my hands out and yelled out to all. My word echoed across the world. Salvation! Salvation! I screamed, then stood aside to help usher my fellows on board. We were safe. Jupiter Drive Yard's Emergency Hotline, how may I direct your call? A delightfully happy voice responded as I finished my count of the souls on board. CIS Cassandra's Kiss reporting. Uh, please direct me to your colony rights purchasing department. I replied calmly and with as friendly a tone as I could, considering the stress. Okay, one moment. I rolled my eyes as I was put on hold, having that terrible music played over the line. Jesus, it's 3183, and we still use elevator music for the 1960s. The line suddenly screeched, and a male, elderly voice spoke next. I am Ambassador Jeremiah Sorensen. I represent the Jupiter Drive Yards and its subsidiaries. How may I hope? My name is Julius, Independent Fleet Ops of the Condor Legions. I have a priority one request for a functional terraforming candidate. Settlement as soon as possible, I said, firm and careful. Oh, uh, one moment. Uh, I think we have a few available. A few moments of silence. I could hear typing in the background. Oh, more than a few. We have an S3 planet with a nitro oxy atmosphere and stable biosphere with limited but active life. Minimal predators. It has been cleared for settlement, he said, sending me the data. Please halt. I need to see the data and compare. I carefully compared the readouts. Same atmosphere, same biosphere, same general biological diversity. It was perfect. I'll take it. Very well, sir. Uh, The payment of two million credits is... uh, Oh? Oh, my... Before he could even finish, I transferred the amount into his account. Your client must be most eager to get to this planet. This is a personal purchase. It is an absolute priority. I can't wait forever, as I have an emergency on my hands. Please provide coordinates and clearances immediately, I said, making sure to speak in a tone that conveyed seriousness. A personal purchase from from, from a base uh, of a planet? You... You will have to excuse me if I find this a bit out of the ordinary, but here you go. Credits received, Coordinates attached to your invoice. Happy trails, I suppose? He was genuinely shocked. I can't say I blamed him. Thank you. Close calm. He took all of my savings. It'll be at least another twenty or so years before I can retire now, but they have a home. And I'm fine with that. I don't think the Admiralty Board would give a damn, either. Once I've dealt with the medical issues and got preferables set, we can start first contact protocols. This needed to be dealt with fast. It took barely a week before we came to the new planet. I ignored customs and broadcast emergency landing procedures. It was barely 20 minutes after I landed that I was ready to disembark. I headed down to the bay to find 27,000 pairs of eyes now staring at me expectantly. That little kid, the one I gave the first translator to, he was now wearing some kind of official robe. They must have made him an ambassador or something. Hello, human Julius, he said. His voice was squeaky, like a kid. He barely reached up to my chest in height. Hey, uh, you have a good flight? How's everyone doing? I asked him as I made my way to the boarding ramp. Better than we could have ever hoped, he responded and followed me to the ramp. I made my way through the hastily crafted shantytown made of fabric and reeds, thin stalks of bamboo-like wood, and a fabric that stank of cactus. Uh, Good to hear. Things are about to get better, though. How could they possibly get any better? We are safe. We have each other. What can you possibly give us that could get any better than this? Home, I said simply, and I started atmospheric cycling atmospheric cycling in progress stand by my ship's computer voice echoed through the cargo bay dead silence ran through as the ramp slowly opened when it hit the ground everyone was overcome by the beautiful feeding of green grass swaying trees and the scent of flowers carried on a breeze i took my helmet off showing the little creatures my face for the first time i smiled at him it took all i had plus supplies I'm not going to make next delivery, and I'm more than likely not going to retire for a few hundred more years. But, uh, welcome home, friend. I extended my hand for a handshake. He lunged forward and hugged me instead. Worth it. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot. Thank you very much. And I'm sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. I would just like to thank our T5 members, Lord Azical, Ambrose Cattell, Phantom Wednesday, Dregsune WRE, Blueberry Cat, Cam Maxwell, Caspar Arnholtz, Bushmaster 177, and Leslie 517. Thank you very much.